0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Now, back in the day, nudity on TV was pretty rare and the isolated sightings of it were almost national events. But these days, some TV shows take a more ballsy approach.
0: You're going to have to get naked as well. Yes. How do you feel about that? I already have the utmost respect before I've even seen their balls.
2: Yeah. Mary. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yuck.
1: There's plenty of nudity available elsewhere, on demand and online these days, of course the broadcasting watchdog and some experts have been weighing up the shock of the nude on TV. Also, the cost of Netflix is going up, but if you don't want to pay, TVNZ On Demand is still free, if you don't mind the odd ad. But we find those adverts actually do come at a cost to you. We also look at how TV opinion polls weighing up politicians' popularity are actually proving pretty unpopular, with more and more of the people being polled. But first how the government made the media mad this week by turning off the tap for an important announcement. Kia ora. good
0: evening. We begin tonight with exclusive breaking news. Big moves on a natural resource vital to the health and well-being of every New Zealander, water. Revealed just minutes ago, the country's getting a dedicated watchdog for water and water quality to ensure access to safe, clean drinking water. New regulations will also be introduced to help clean up wastewater and stormwater systems nationwide with more government oversight.
1: Well, that was big news leading TVNZ1 News last Wednesday. Just minutes earlier, the government released the details for that new regulator for water, something which will have an impact all around the country. And it's important to get this right. When water goes wrong, it can be a matter of life and death, as TVNZ One News presenter Simon Dallow went on to point out. Katie Bradford's covered the story over the years. She joins us now from Hawke's Bay.
0: Katie.
3: Good evening well this is Ground Zero where so many people got sick and have locked north north nearly three years ago and since then there's been a number of inquiries and reviews but tonight's review, release of the Three Waters review looking at our drinking waste and stormwater, represents the biggest overhaul of our drink of our water regulations in many many years.
1: TVNZ's Katie Bradford has indeed been all over the story since the crisis broke in Hawke's Bay in 2016. Here she is in a later report, for example, in May 2017.
3: The butcher here has to pay hundreds of dollars a week to buy uh, thousands, hundreds of litres of water, fresh water, to make his sausages, because if he doesn't, his sausage casings are green. So, you know, the, the effect here is still being really strongly felt.
1: And that's quite a level of detail there from TVNZ's Katie Bradford. But in her scoop last Wednesday, the local government minister, Nanaia Mahuta, told Katie Bradford this.
0: The important thing is to ensure that the regulator has oversight and stewardship of the whole system because right now 78 territorial authorities are a part of our drinking water supply.
1: But it turns out that the minister and her government had quite a lot of oversight into how that story ended up on TVNZ1 News exclusively last Wednesday. Indeed, the story was exclusively offered by them to TVNZ, much to the irritation of other reporters who were annoyed to see the minister on TVNZ1 News there leafing through a copy of the report, which they hadn't been able to see in advance. Now, they knew this announcement was coming, though, because the Prime Minister's office had given political reporters a heads-up about it earlier in the week. So they expected to get the details under some sort of embargo in advance but when these weren't forthcoming ahead of Wednesday the media then found out about the deal done with TVNZ. Now as it happened RNZ's checkpoint did get the news on the air a few minutes after TVNZ 1 News had it after 6 p.m. on Wednesday like
3: this. Our Hawke's Bay reporter Anusha Bradley has been feverishly looking at the details which have just been
0: released and she's on the phone now. Good evening Anusha, what's going to change? Good evening, Alex. Well, as you know, at the moment, water management is largely up to individual
2: councils. The government says this new dedicated water watchdog will be independent, centrally located and have strong oversight of the entire drinking water system in New Zealand.
1: But there would have been no need for reporter Anusha Bradley to digest the details in such a hurry and relay them in a rushed report over the phone if the details had been given to all media in advance. And there were a lot of details in the full report, which ran to about 130 pages. Now once the government realised that it had slipped up by giving the media heads up on something of national importance but also offered the story to just one outlet, it really should have dumped its deal and given all interested media the opportunity to see the details under embargo. Indeed, if they want the media to observe embargoes in the future, they can't just pick and choose the outlets where they think they'll get the best exposure, especially when it's stuff of genuine national importance. A senior staff reporter at the press in Christchurch, Dominic Harris, certainly thought so, and he said so on Twitter that night. But in the end, I asked him, does it matter to the public who gets the story first among the media in a case like this?
0: Dumping such an enormous amount of information, critical information, that has such far-reaching consequences for the public uh, onto us, the media, makes our job extremely difficult. And that job is bringing information to the public in a timely manner, and it just stops us doing our job properly. The first I realised, my colleague was watching the six o'clock news, noticed it, uh, called over to me, I checked my email inbox at a couple of minutes past six, and the first thing I saw was uh, a release from Nanaia Mahuta's office and David Clark's office with the full press release and the links to the Cabinet papers.
1: What's to stop you, though, just saying, well, we'll report on this in a few hours' time when we've had time to read it? I mean, this wouldn't be the first time, would it, that uh, a government or or a minister's office has um, tried to get uh, a bit of exposure by uh, giving something to a, one of the 6pm uh, news bulletins and the rest of the media's had to follow on?
0: No, it wouldn't be the first time, and I do understand that news organisations occasionally get exclusives but with such critical um, decisions that affect so many people across the country and involve potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of public money, uh, you would think that it's fair that the government allows the media the time to scrutinise their decisions in a timely manner. At the end of the day, the most important people in this are the public.
1: Is it perhaps a concern for you that if it's out there, lead story on the 6pm news, that is when the rest of the media will follow it and the news cycle moves on, you're unlikely to go back to it?
0: Absolutely, that's, that's one of the key um, quandaries that we face, is that when information is given to us late, uh, the news cycle does move forward very, very quickly. Um, I think a lot of the media were forced to you know, really report off of the press release without delving into the reports enormously, and they didn't necessarily have the opportunity to do that. Now, there would be nothing wrong with giving that report, that Cabinet paper and a press release to us, even a few hours earlier under embargo, so that we could do our due diligence.
1: And Dominic, does this um, make you perhaps less willing to observe embargoes in the future, or particularly those that might have a 6pm embargo time?
0: Not necessarily. Um, if, if I agree to an embargo unless there is an exceptionally good reason, I will always abide by it.
1: And finally, Dominic, uh, when you expressed your uh, annoyance about this on Wednesday night, uh, you did uh, copy in the the Twitter handles of uh, Minister Clark and Minister Mahuta. Um, Did they respond in any way or anyone from their office to, um, you know, you making clear your frustration that I know was shared by other journalists that felt they were denied that story that was exclusive on uh, TVNZ1 News on Wednesday night?
0: No, neither, neither minister has come back to me, not that I would necessarily expect them to. Um, people connected with their offices have expressed their own frustrations. Strange to alert the gallery reporters to a, a coming story um, and then not to, not to follow through with it. It seems a very strange way of doing things. Uh, and I can only wonder at the decision-making behind um, this release of such important information.
1: That was stuff reporter in Christchurch, Dominic Harris, on how the government's media handling muddied the waters last Wednesday on that big announcement of a new national water regulator.
0: The News Hub Read Research poll has the Labour Party up 3.3% to 50.8 and able to govern alone and shows National down to 37.4%. Over on One News, the Colmar Brunton poll has National back in front on 44% and Labour down six to forty-two percent.
1: That was News Talk ZB's news back on the 10th of June, the night that rival TV news outfits TVNZ and NewsHub simultaneously released political polls which were completely contradictory as far as support for the big two political parties was concerned. Politicians disputing the outcomes were dismissed as in denial, though it was actually both broadcasters who were willfully ignoring the inconvenient results of their rivals. But one thing both polls did line up on, though, was this.
0: One aspect that is the same in both polls is the lack of popularity of National Party leader Simon Bridges.
1: And back in June, both TV networks made a huge deal out of fewer people in their pollsters' samples preferring Simon Bridges as Prime Minister than his colleague Judith Collins. Now, the actual difference between the pair was marginal and minimal. Both of them were registering single-digit support anyway. But it did play up to the dead man-walking media narrative that's dogged the National Leader ever since he got the job. But neither network mentioned the second most popular response to the preferred Prime Minister question, don't know, and the other people who simply didn't prefer anyone. Now this week, the first poll since those ones back in June came out, TBNZ's latest Colmar Brunton survey of 1,000 more landline and mobile phone owners. But instead of ignoring the rival poll this time, News Hub wrote about it online with this headline. Approval rating for Simon Bridges hits rock bottom in New Poll. But in fact, Simon Bridges was up a point on the previous TVNZ Colmar Brunton poll and level with Judith Collins on 6% support. And that's an even better showing than the 4.2% in NewsHub's last poll two months ago, a result that prompted political editor Tova O'Brien to call Simon Bridges the rotting head of a fish that would have to be cut off. So, sheepishly or perhaps grudgingly, NewsHub then changed the headline online last Monday to this. Simon Bridges' approval rating neck and neck with Judith Collins in New poll in which case it's handy Simon Bridges still has a head, rotten or not, on that neck. well in the end, whether it's four point two percent or five or six percent for either of those two politicians, it doesn't really matter much, but NewsHub was also interested in an even more marginal presence in their rivals new poll this week. A new face has appeared. The poll shows 1% of respondents want outgoing CEO of Air New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, as their Prime Minister. Indeed, TVNZ One News last Monday led with that development.
0: New names in the mix when it comes to preferred Prime Ministers in our latest One News Comma Brunton poll.
1: TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay told Simon Dello that Christopher Luxon in their preferred Prime Minister's poll was news.
3: We know prompt people with questions of who you want as Prime Minister. We don't give them a list of names. We simply ask them, who do you want to be Prime Minister? So it's very interesting that his name has come up. People are clearly thinking beyond Simon Bridges and gazing into the future of the National Party. He's
0: got name recognition and all the possibilities. All Thank of Thank you very that. much for that, Jess. Political editor Jessica much McCoy. But that
1: name recognition only accounted for about 1%, according to TBNZ, which would be the support of about 10 people out of the 1,000 sampled. But in fact, it wasn't even that. The full results on the Colmar Brunton website showed the result for Christopher Luxon was 0.6%, or six people out of the 1,000 sampled. But nevertheless, RNZ thought all this was significant too, rushing out an online story that began this way. Christopher Luxon hasn't even joined the political race, but still features in the preferred Prime Minister stakes in the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll. And Christopher Luxon's showing in the poll was also the angle for News Talk ZB News the next morning.
2: There's a surprise appearance by Air New Zealand's departing chief executive in the latest One News Colmar Brunton political poll.
1: Christopher Luxon popped up in the preferred prime minister race on 1% support. But that was in spite of the fact that political lobbyist and pundit Ben Thomas had just told ZB's early edition show it was only a media-driven blip.
0: Christopher Luxon doesn't have a huge groundswell of support amongst the New Zealand public. His name was sort of flashed in lights as a potential National Party leader by the media when he announced his resignation from Air New Zealand.
1: Indeed it was, in a flurry of media reports last month, flying a kite for Christopher Luxon's prospective career in politics. His preferred political party and policies were entirely undeclared and unknown, but still, the airline guy was said to be flying high by many in our media then, and again this week after this new poll. One other person who's not in politics actually did get 1% in the Colmar Brunton poll, and he appeared in Three's show The Project last Monday night, where he was eased into the show, or greased into it, like this.
0: Uh, First up tonight we're joined by political royalty so John Key has been back in the news these past few days popping up at the National Party conference in Christchurch
3: where his star quality was still a big draw card for the party faithful. And
1: after that the project's Kanoa Lloyd asked John Key this about the 0.6% man.
0: You're surprised to hear Christopher Luxon's name being kicked around, though, for a 4 year party. it's pretty
1: cool being at 1%, and
3: he hasn't even decided where he's going in the politics <laughs> yeah. yet. So, yeah, well, good says so what happens if he does. But no, he, he, he's, he, obviously he's a great man, Christopher, but what he ultimately decides to do, that's, that's up for
1: him. Now, although the project didn't mention it, John Key is a director at Air New Zealand, where Christopher Luxon is still the chief executive for now. So why get him into the TV3 studio and not really ask him what his role in Christopher Luxon's possible political career really is and whether he's helping Luxon build a bridge to national? And as it's supposed to be a sort of news show, one of the four hosts that night could also have asked John Key about the goings-on at ANZ Bank, where John Key's also a director and his direction has been under the spotlight lately. But it seems neither the hosts nor John Key himself actually had any idea why he was on the show that night at all.
0: But you were all over social media, it was well covered, and now you're on this show. Yeah.
1: What's going on? What are you doing? I know. Well, your producers begged me, and I turned them down ten times.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're desperate, apparently. (laughs) Also, I'm cheap, I'm free.
1: (laughs) we just got so
0: badly burned. Yeah, but you, I mean, you.
1: Eventually, the project did extract from John Key one political opinion. He said that Jacinda Ardern appears to be a popular Prime Minister.
3: As a person, um, yeah, look, I think a lot of people will like it.
1: And the 41% of the people polled by Colmar Brunton for TVNZ, who picked her as preferred prime minister, seems to prove that. But the popularity of the preferred prime minister question itself is definitely going south. In this week's poll, those who didn't prefer a prime minister, didn't know which one they preferred or refused to answer the question, totaled a whopping 38% of the sample. The next night, TVNZ1 News told people that the same people polled by Colmar Brunton were a lot more willing to take a side on the tricky issue of assisted dying.
0: In the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll, we asked whether a terminally or incurably ill person should be able to ask for medical help to end their life. 72% said yes, while 20% said no. The rest weren't sure.
1: So if they were given a say on preferred Prime Minister polling, plenty of citizens would probably vote to put that out of its misery. The question is clearly a lot less important to real people than it is for the media looking for stories about high-profile leaders. Last year, TVNZ floated the idea of offering an ad-free version of TVNZ On Demand for people who are prepared to pay a bit. And this was an acknowledgement that people's tolerance for ads interrupting programs they choose to watch is on the wane. now that about 2 million New Zealanders have access to ad-free streaming services such as Netflix. Although, of course, they have to pay for Netflix, and this week they learned that the monthly fees are going up. But just because TVNZ On Demand is free, that doesn't mean there's no cost to you. Jeremy Rose has been crunching the numbers on that. Some live for moments,
0: but others live for the in-between, the twos and from's. It's where we find freedom. To get further in life, there is this place. It can't be found on any map. Miles off the beaten track, with twists and
2: turns, with ups and downs, so dark it is hidden from the public eye.
3: That was a mashup up of a couple of ads for SUVs currently screening on TVNZ On Demand. Adverts are in one sense the original fake news. Everyone knows those shiny SUVs are more likely to be found in supermarket car parks, Auckland traffic jams or bumper-to-bumper outside the school gates than on the winding mountain roads or wide-open beaches that they're invariably shown cruising on. Fake they may be, but in the past, ads like those helped fund much of the journalistic content you saw on TV, but now you're forced to endure them if you want to catch up with programmes you've already paid for through New Zealand On Air. Car manufacturers are among the biggest spenders of online video advertising, spending $360,000 in February alone. Only banks spent more. But whereas virtually all of us use banks, only a fraction of 1% of us are in the market for a new SUV. With TVNZ charging $180 per thousand views for a 30-second spot, your eyeballs cost the advertisers $0.18 per ad. If they were to pay you directly at, say, the average hourly rate of $32, it would cost closer to $0.27. And if there were four of you watching the one screen, the advertiser would be paying just $0.4 5 for over a dollar's worth of your combined time. So just how much revenue do our television companies generate from programmes that are paid for out of the public purse? So-called commercial sensitivity means none of them are about to disclose that information to Media Watch, but they're happy to share viewership numbers and their rate cards, so we can take a rough stab at the likely amount being earned from their on-demand services. A two-part documentary, That's a Bit Racist, that was funded with a 388000 grant from New Zealand On Air and screened on TV1 last month, has so far had 26,000 views online. Eight 30-second ads screen on the on-demand version, with around half of those being promos for other programmes on TVNZ On Demand. So based on the state broadcaster's rate card, it could have earned up to $18,000. If we place the same value on our leisure and work time, the cost to us, the viewers, is more like $56,000. Having already paid for the documentary to be made, and as the owners of TVNZ, should the New Zealand public really have to sit through ads for products that in many cases they're not even in the market for? MediaWatch asked TVNZ whether it had any thoughts of making New Zealand on-air content advert-free on its on-demand service. TVNZ's corporate manager of communications, Rachel
1: Howard, replied. It's not something we're considering. New Zealand On Air funding goes directly to production companies rather than TVNZ, with the exception of Country Calendar, which receives NZ On Air funding and is made in-house. TVNZ pays a licence fee to each production company for use of the content. As TVNZ pays licence fees to the creators and also provides the operational work to broadcast the content, it wouldn't be feasible to remove advertising from funded content.
3: Rachel Howard said TVNZ had been considering introducing a paid-for on-demand service for those wanting to avoid adverts, but had no announcement to make on the issue at this stage. And she pointed out that TVNZ's NZ On Air funded children's on-demand television service Hey, hey is advert-free. A spokesperson for New Zealand On Air said the decision of whether to screen ads during programmes it has funded is a commercial one and entirely up to the broadcaster or platform. If you want a taste of what an ad-free, on-demand service for publicly funded New Zealand programmes might be like, head over to MāoriTelevision.com, and you can view everything from the new animated comedy Araha Bridge to the current affairs show Te Ao with Moana, completely ad-free. So has Maori television taken a principled stand and decided it's wrong to pepper ads through programs paid for out of the public purse? No, a spokesperson told MediaWatch, Watch. Maori television operates in a commercial environment and it's happy to play ads if anyone wants
1: to pay for them. Jeremy Rose reporting there on the cost of ads that interrupt our on-demand programs, even those you've already paid for via New Zealand On Air. When NewsHub spoke to Wainwright last week at his home in Woodville, he said he was trying to make it decent.
0: The first time I saw it, I had a friend with me and she saw it and she said, That's disgusting. And I thought, That's right, it is.
1: That was Milton Wainwright from Woodville, who's been convicted of willful damage after cutting the penis off a Māori statue on a walking track in the Manawatu Gorge recently, leaving local iwi distraught. Now, Mr. Wainwright told NewsHub he and his companion weren't prepared for a naked male form during their walk in the park, albeit a stylized one made of wood. And on the same day, on RNZ's 9 to Noon, Catherine Ryan looked at a more high tech means of turning innocent images of women into naked ones.
2: The Deep Nude app used artificial
3: intelligence to create realistic-looking nude photos of women, and it was only women. It wasn't designed to work on men.
1: And anyone online could become a victim of this sort of digital fakery, as artificial intelligence specialist Curtis Barnes explained on Nine to Noon.
3: It would reproduce a new photo in which it had stripped away clothes and uh, inserted synthetic naked breasts and genitals. So obviously not the actual body of the woman in the photograph, but an artificial intelligence's attempt to recreate what it thought uh, that woman's body would look like in that particular photo.
1: So even fake nudity is everywhere online these days, alongside more and more of the real stuff. But it wasn't always the way on our TV screens. Indeed, so rare was nudity on screen once in the pre-internet and pre-pay TV days that instances of it were almost national events. TVNZ presenter Angela Dordney, for example, had a long career back in the 70s and 80s. She died in the year 2000, but she's still best remembered now for briefly appearing topless in a one-off drama way back in 1982. Mm, opening gambit. What? The man who fancied your breasts. Oh, I see. Man, held woman, dirty jokers, age, seduction.
3: Yes, well, Freud wasn't always right.
1: Now, 37 years later, there are plenty of scenes like that in shows that screen after 8.30 at night on the main TV channels here or at any time of day on pay TV channels. And most of those shows pass without comment or complaint. But not all of them.
2: Here what? They are, Mary. Oh, my God. Oh, I must uh, yuck. Most disgusting sight you've ever seen.
1: That was one of the stars of TV3's show Gogglebox last year and it wasn't just Mary who was startled by the controversial British nude dating show Naked Attraction in which body parts of the prospective partners are revealed bit by bit with nothing left to the imagination at the end. Now, this show sounds a bit sleazy, and it was at times, but it was also an interesting reflection on people's perceptions of other people's bodies, their differences, their blemishes, and even disabilities. But several people who did find it gratuitous on TV2 complained to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. Now, the authority upheld just one of those complaints as a breach of standards for good taste and decency, and only because it found that viewers should have had a more detailed and effective warning beforehand. Now, there were also complaints about another show from the UK with even more explicit nakedness, but this one wasn't just about entertainment. I'll be quite honest with you. When I've seen it before, it's mainly been in boys, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and it's very, very, very obvious. Because you're a woman if I may say so, you've got good boobs, your boobs cover it up quite nicely. The doctors on the show Embarrassing Bodies, who examined real-life people with unusual complaints, have seen it all before. But even viewers accustomed to nudity would have been startled by the up-close and exceptionally personal footage of the most private parts of other people. The BSA had a few formal complaints about that show too, but given the pretty comprehensive warnings about what was on offer, none of those were upheld. But it did give the authority pause for thought about nudity on screen today and sexual media content. It released two new research reports. The first had the results of online surveys and focus groups in which, broadly speaking, people thought that a bit of sexy TV was fine late at night so long as people weren't ambushed by it. People having sex on TV, however, needed a bit more careful handling. Older people and parents feared that naked people in entertainment shows might give children and teenagers unrealistic, idealised images of the body, and many felt that the adults-only time band should start later than 8.30pm. But 375 out of 500 people surveyed said they don't even use the tools like programming guides, classifications or parental locks to manage kids' viewing. The Broadcasting Standards Authority also commissioned research on the impact that nudity on screen might have on our children and young people. That research was done by the Collaborative Trust, based in Christchurch, and led by Dame Susan Bagshaw, who's been dedicated to young people and their health needs for more than 30 years. So after having a look at all the literature on this here and overseas, what did they find?
2: I think we've had sexy advertising forever. Um, I think the public attitudes towards sexy stuff... It's interesting. In some areas, it's the opposition has risen, and in other areas, it's completely permissive. And, of course, the media has a role in shaping that. In terms of sexual images in films, in other ways, and I think all the social media stuff, it seems worse because it's more available to so many more people. Well, what are the
1: key issues then that arise when we're talking about children and people under the age of 18 who are exposed to visual images of the naked body in broadcasting specifically?
2: Well, the literature showed was it depends on the context, Um, and if it's an educational medical or even artistic context, nobody's very bothered and it's actually quite helpful. When it's in a sexual context, I think it depends on whether the intent is to sexually arouse people, which is the kind of definition of pornography. Then that can be okay on people who know about their sexuality and who aren't disturbed and who've got good education parents who explain things parents who've you know they've learned stuff going through life it's not a problem but for people who've been abused or haven't got anybody to explain things no adult to talk to when they're feeling uncomfortable then that can be a problem depending on the state of development of their brain That
1: other show, which the BSA considered uh, the Naked Attraction one, which is an entertainment sort of game show thing, also crosses over to a bit of an almost sociological look at, well, how do people respond when they see different people's bodies? You know, they see the top half and the guy's all muscle-bound and um, and, uh, the contestant might be quite attracted to that. You see the bottom half and realise, oh dear, um, you know, he's got one steel leg. You know, he's an amputee. Uh, Quite an
2: interesting response to difference. Absolutely. Um, and I, Again, if there's shame attached, um, if there's a, a discomfort, if people get sexually aroused by things like that, then that can cause a problem. But I think the litmus test showed that most people found that it was entertaining and um, they were a bit shocked by um, because they hadn't seen anything of the like before. But I think it kind of almost normalised the fact that people have different bodies. The
1: report states, uh, exposure to sexual content in the media is associated with more permissive sexual attitudes in teens. Watching popular television programs which contain sexual content can lead children and young people to see examples as normative and shape their own attitudes. Um, So is that saying that what the authority kind of labels, you know, sexy media, for want of a a better term, really does have an impact on how children and young people decide to behave sexually later on as they mature?
2: So the research on violence in TV showed that's a similar sort of effect. And again, very much about context. So if you've got parents talking to their young person about the the context of this, that it's it's entertainment, it's supposed to be part of a story, it's not real life, all those kind of angles, it's really, really important, especially the younger the person is. So if you've got a concrete brain... Um, and you're learning by absorption, which is what children do, then you're going to learn by absorption from television of all the stuff that you can see and all the stuff you can see online, just as much as they learn from real life. As they get older and are able to think about thinking, then they're much more uh, readily able to distinguish um, entertainment from reality. You need a parent to to help you do that.
1: That, that's one of the really interesting parts of the research was where the focus groups told the, the authority that uh, some of the, the the adults in their 40s, who are probably most of them parents, were concerned about what their children might think about it. But then in your report it says there is evidence that some adolescents are thoughtful and discerning in their media choices and able to determine what's appropriate and realistic and separate what they saw on television or online from reality. So that's a pretty good sign, isn't it, if at least some adolescents are able to do that.
2: Absolutely. And I think the older ones actually do worry more about the younger ones just as much as parents do. Um, I think the really important thing for parents to be aware of is there are classifications, there are warnings, um, and maybe we need to work on... um, making those warnings a bit more attention-seeking so that people actually are aware of the upcoming comment or content and actually can comment on their children's watching it, turn it off get them to explain it beforehand, all those kind of things. Because these days with rerun TV and Netflix and all those other things, you know, you can delay the time you watch it. Um, And if children and young people are watching too, then you can actually affect what they watch. You can do something about it. But at the same time, they have got the tools with which to control it.
1: Yeah, the BSA's research also, uh, the online survey, for example, finding 375 out of 500 people uh, don't use programming tools like the guides, classifications, or even, you know, the, the more intrusive stuff like parental locks, to manage the viewing of kids and younger people. I mean, you know, the interviews and the focus groups, uh, people did express this concern about the so-called sexy media content, but, yeah, they're not using the tools that might enable them to, uh, to, to have an impact on what the children see.
2: Exactly. It just doesn't make sense. So use what's there instead of complaining about what's going on. Just do something about it and use what's there. And maybe, you know, the broadcasters can do something more about making the information a bit more... Um, I don't know, available in terms of getting your attention, but you know they're there and they can be used.
1: Some of the older participants in the focus group suggested pushing back that adults-only time to after, uh, so fewer younger people might be exposed to some of this stuff. But I mean, if parents are too slack, <laughs> broadly speaking, according mm-hmm. to this online survey, to uh, to actually enforce uh, any kind of rules over their kids viewing or use the tools that that are available, then would that have to be that assumption? We have to be be built into whatever response the authority makes to this
2: research? Well, I think you can push it back to 9.30. But the thing is that a lot of this stuff is available on your phone Mm. any time of the day or night. So, you know, you can can regulate TV and push it back to 9.30 or something like that. But it's available on all sorts of other media. So I don't think that's going to help. I think warnings, education, parents teaching children about the difference between what they watch and reality really, really
1: important. Everyone's got a device now, uh, probably teenagers from from quite a young age um, can get the internet on a a device in their pocket. Um, So really, is it going to make any difference if broadcasters... Uh, obliged to adopt new rules that the authority might um, put in place as a result of this research, when most of the content they're seeing along these lines is not, uh, you know, broadcaster-related stuff going out on the air on mainstream television. It's it's morselised content on the phones or even direct social media content that they're sharing. Restricting the way the broadcasters operate isn't really
2: going to make much difference to that, is it? Not the timing, no. They could do better um, warnings, but at the same time, I think... Um, you know, those were a couple of research papers that showed that. There are a couple of research papers that show that it's incredibly good education stuff too. So you know, we have to balance research and its results with um, other things coming in and we know that all those things you mentioned are also influenced by parents' behaviour more than anything else. Um, So if young people watch their parents doing um, stuff like that and having loads of partners and, you know, that kind of stuff, that's going to be much more influential. We've known for years that mums who are pregnant as teenagers often have daughters who are pregnant as teenagers. So there's heaps of other influences going on. Having said that, we can do the best we can in terms of informing people so they can use the off button.
1: As a doctor, and particularly one who works uh, with youth and has done for a very long time, uh, you would have seen it all before, as the saying goes, um, I wonder what you make of um, the series Embarrassing Bodies, which was one of those that got complained about, and one of those where uh, the Broadcasting Standards Authority asked uh, some of their focus group people to look at the decisions they made in declining to uphold the complaints about it.
2: Absolutely. I think it's, it's probably incredibly educational. That is some
1: of the most up-close and personal <laughs> footage you'll it's ever see anywhere. Yeah. Of, um of and that, that that kind of program simply wouldn't have been made uh, it would have been regarded as you know inappropriate if not indecent uh maybe 10 15 20 years ago um, but now do you think it's a it's a good thing it's a healthy thing that a, a mainstream broadcaster in the UK can make a show like that it then gets remade in Australia and can be screened
2: in countries here uh, without too many people being upset? I think it's really good because I think it's really important that we accept that everybody's body is different, that it's nothing to be shamed about, that the huge diversity of shapes and colours and um, I think it's when shame is attached to the body that you've got problems.
1: The Australians made a version of it. Do you reckon... uh... New Zealand would benefit from a a local version of of that particular programme?
2: You never know. There might be some difficulty in gaining participants, but um, there may well be people who are willing to do that. I'm not sure I know many of them, but, um, yeah, I I think anything that presents the naked body without shame is helpful.
0: It
1: all depends on people's willingness to go on television.
2: You've got it it in one.
1: There was Dame Susan Bagshaw, a doctor and advocate for youth health, who co-wrote a study for the Broadcasting Standards Authority on the effect of nudity and sexy media content on young people. And you can hear more from her about that in the online version of the story, where you'll also find links to her report and the Broadcasting Standards Authority research on public attitudes to on-screen nudity. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.